Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. What is that old saying, do a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life? That is the life that Gabriela Cortez is lucky enough to lead. She is the founder and the visionary behind the brand Antique Batik. And as part of her job, she gets to travel the world for months at a time, looking for new ways to incorporate the beauty of ethnic designs and the craftsmanship of local artisans into her bohemian chic collections. Born and turned Italy, Gabriella grew up with eclectic style inspirations all around her. Her mother instilled in her a love of beautiful things and an eye towards well-made clothing, while her Hungarian grandmother expanded her style palette by introducing her to the beauty of the Middle Europa aesthetic. And then, after living a rather sheltered childhood, Gabriella decided, at the age of 18, to explore the world. A choice that quickly found her living in Paris, France, and working as a dancer at the famed Crazy Horse Cabaret. There, she learned how effective the use of pattern and light can be as it plays across the body, a skill that would come in handy later at Antique Batik when she began to design clothing out of graphic and dramatically printed fabrics. But before the idea of starting a label had ever entered into her mind, Gabriella decided that while she was still young, she wanted to continue to see the world, and she spent years visiting places like Bali, Tibet, Nepal, and India. Then, not unlike Ralph Lauren who got his start selling men's ties, Gabriella began her business by selling a single item, the Pareo, her beautiful wrapped skirts that she created with local artists in Bali by using the batik printing technique were an instant hit. So in 1992, she launched Antique Batik and began to corner the market for those women looking for a sophisticated slant on hippie chic ethnic fashion at a time when minimalism was at its peak. From its inception, Gabriella was determined that Antique Batik would be an eco-friendly brand dedicated to supporting artists in far-flung countries who have the unique skill set to create her colorful and richly embroidered designs. And for the past three decades, she has built up long-lasting relationships with many of her suppliers in India and elsewhere. She sees them as part of her extended family and the work that they do as the beating heart of her successful business. Just on a technical side note, I did want to let all you listeners know that Gabrielle and I did our interview over Zoom video, so don't be surprised by a couple of very minor audio issues. And if you happen to be more of a visual learner, feel free to head over to my signature YouTube channel to watch the video version of this podcast in action. Now, it's time to discover how Gabriella built up a global business out of her passion for travel and her devotion to ethnic elegance. Gabriela, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. It's a, a real pleasure to finally have the opportunity to talk to you about your career. Thank you very much. It's a very nice for me to talk with you. I'm very happy to be here. Can you talk to me a little bit about your childhood and growing up and your first influences? Because I like to always go back to the beginning in, in these podcasts to kind of get the whole origin story. So I wanted to know 
what were your first connections to style and your ideas of beauty and all of that when you were growing up? Because it's clearly going to define you as an adult and in your creative process. Yes. Uh, I was born in Torino, which is a, in Italy, which is a very uh, classic and let's say uh, bourgeois town. And of course, the first input for me was uh, to see my mother very elegant, dressed up in Saint Laurent. And uh, let's say that this is the beginning for me when I when I I love fashion. I was I was going with her to catwalk in Torino because there was a lot of stylists in Torino who was, who were making like shoes, you know, same leather than the bags and the, the gloves. And uh, there was a really real uh, love for the materials and the prints and the quality of the thing. Mm -hmm. So that's the beginning. Of course, uh, I was in a family, multicultural family, because my ma grandmother was Hungarian. So our um, uh, culture was uh, very open and uh, I learned to do uh, things in the house like knitting or embroidering with my grandmother and um, I was very much kept in, in the house when I was a young girl doing a classic dance for uh, at least 14 years and uh, my way of traveling was through uh, literature oh. so I studied classics and I loved how the people at beginning 1900 they used to travel for example Stendhal or Goethe they used to travel in Italy and go and do that classic travel to learn how to be uh, a whole person you know with the whole culture mm -hmm. so uh, I always loved to do the same thing and when I was very young I was in love of Salgari Emilio Salgari who was writing uh, and doing uh, designs and, and writing at the same time of uh, traveling so I fell in love with Sandokan who was uh, Afterwards, was played by uh, Kabir Bedi, who was um, uh, the movie, who was the uh, Indian uh, actor, very well known. And he was like uh, king of Malaysia, all, all naked, dressed up with sarong and uh, <laughs> napping that lady, uh, very tight and very beautiful uh, English lady. So that's, that was the base. <laughs> basically of my uh, way to to go towards uh, fashion and uh, and then when i could travel of course i came to paris mm -hmm. at 18 years old and in paris i was in sorbonne first of all and then i start i i had to work to live in paris and to stay in paris so i find i found a job in uh, crazy Horse so without knowing what it was and it was <laughs> actually is the best cabaret in the world but naked girls you know so okay. you you got hired just so i understand you got your first job in paris to help pay the bills where you were at the sorbonne studying was to dance naked at, at the crazy horse is that right <laughs> Oh my goodness, that must have been such a shock for you coming from such a, you know, such a, a family where you were, you know, at home and studied and, you know, in your own universe to something like that. That's amazing. It was a big scandal. It was a big scandal. My father didn't talk to me for at least one year, you know? Oh my goodness. Well, that, that opened your eyes to certain things working at the Crazy Horse, but 
it's interesting because you actually didn't study any kind of fashion design or anything like that. Your studies were much more intellectual. So fashion design didn't really come to you in that classic sort of way. It came to you more through your travels around the world to live that life that you had seen in books as a child. Is that right? Yes, it's right. It came, uh, it came all alone. And that's why when I began to be a designer, I didn't do garments at the beginning because I didn't felt, uh, you know, that rapture to do that. So I started to do Pareo in Bali when I went the first time in Bali. And that's how Antique Batik was born, was born in a hectic way, doing work with the handicapped people. And that was my, uh, my beauty of discovering countries without talking the language, but through the artist and through the, the art of doing something. So we we understood each other and we support each other and I support um, many factories putting air condition heater increasing the the fracture of the factory taking care of the people so it it became like that something uh, something uh, like a magic way of doing fashion well, I mean, I think it's so interesting because you got your start is almost the same um, origin story as Ralph Lauren, who started selling ties on the streets in New York. You got the, the wrap skirts that you wear with those like the kind of sarong things that you would wear out on the beach. At the beginning, I guess it was just for fun. And, that, and then that connection with the artisans. At what point did you go, OK, I'm making these parallels, but I could do something more like this could be my my work and what made you decide to, to actually go in that direction and, and make this become your life's work to a certain extent because the fa it went very well very fast so uh, i was in a in a something that was going better and better so after the pareo I start to do a knitted hat like my mother used to do when I was a young girl, you know, like that, like that you know, with the flower. And I start to do that, little bag, shoes. And then I came to the garments. And the first garment was uh, transparent, like, uh, you know, in Crazy Horse, you had those lights to cover the, the body of the girls with designs. And so I start to do transparent things, but also a lot of embroideries because uh, my wish was, for example, traveling around and you, you see something that you love and you wear when you are traveling. And when you come back to Paris, it's just not wearable because it's too ethnic. Mm -hmm. So I changed that way of doing things that uh, they come from embroideries, they come from a common background, because also Hungary helped me a lot to go to India, because uh, Hungarian uh, embroideries and prints, they have something like from India, you know? Mm -hmm. yes, and, uh, yes, and so I, I did that fashion, but in a structured way and in a, uh, that you can wear in, in, in a town in a way that you are elegant and you don't look like a hippie. Yeah, know? no, I know. It's the same thing. Like you, you have so much, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but like when you go to Disneyland and you put on the Disney ears and you, and you, everybody's doing it, it looks great, but then you go back home and you never can wear it again because it doesn't work yeah. with, with where you are. So tell me though, because you started the company, correct me if I'm wrong, in 1992, and that was right at the point when, when minimalism, it was really like, you know, anything that was hippie, chic, and boho, that was not where things were at. How were you able to engage with a consumer and grow the business in a, in a time when fashion was in such a different direction? Yes, it was different direction, and we were quite 
alone in doing prints <laughs> and embroideries. But uh, what, I, uh, what I found very helpful in Paris, for example, when I start with the pareo, in winter they become shesh, they become scarves. Mm. And the fashion at that time was very different from France to Italy. In Italy, in summer, you wear summery material and in winter, you have to wear winter material. In France, it's all, it was always something different. I think uh, that idea of the colony that the French used to have uh, from Shesh, you know, they used to put the scarf from summer around the neck. And so mm-hmm. that became a fashion. And everybody lo- loved the pareo put in a, in a scarf. So well, that's, that's really smart. That is really, really smart. Because it's true. I mean, the, you, try, you try and take a French woman away from her scarf. It's like she clutches it's a little, like her life's blood. Her scarf is such a, a signal of her femininity in France. It really is, especially in winter. And, the, and French women can wrap it in so amazing ways, all these different ways. Um, I, I want to ask a kind of a, a, a question that I don't know. I want to know, did you create the company so that you could continue to travel? Or did the travel just become part of the necessity of the company? Because... I know you have a passion for travel, and I think you travel four months out of the year. So I'm wondering, is is your company kind of a, 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 an avenue through which you can continue to travel and see the world? Yes, I think uh, I think uh, it's uh, the company was a big excuse, big alibi to travel. <laughs> you know, I travel everywhere, and everywhere I went, I work with the uh, people who could do, or could knit, or could print, or could do, uh, do something. So I start of course with Bali uh, with the pareo and uh, the pareo were all made uh, with block with the uh, batiks mm-hmm. and then I discovered India India was the heaven because in India uh, you can do whatever you want embroideries with beads with sequins different kind of prints and uh, meeting people around the world for me traveling has has no meaning if you don't meet people you know you can be in the best place in the world and like a postcard the best place but if you are alone there is no way so um, for me it was a becoming learning a culture visiting people stay with them before my son was born I was 18, 13 before he was one I used to spend months and months in India then when he started to go to school we used to spend one and a half month and uh, the family I was a part of the family of the artisan I was working with so for me traveling is, the, is it was the first thing <laughs> <laughs> okay good to know well, that, that I want to ask you a little bit of a question that, that's a tangent to that is that a lot of designers, you know, talk about their inspiration or, and a lot of young designers, it's all about what they see on Google and what they see on Instagram. But can you talk to me about what well, you did a little bit just now, but what is the difference? How do you get inspired when you're actually feet on the ground in a country? Does that inspire you in a different way than, than if you're just seeing it? And how does it? I mean, clearly it inspires you in a different way, but how does it inspire you in a different way when you're actually physically in a place when you're trying to design a collection? First of all, the design, I, when, when I'm at the stage of creation, the design I do the design here. And then what inspired me the best, for example, you know, it's the time of coloring. It's a time of designing. Uh, of course, your eye see everywhere from books, from uh, pa- paintings, from everywhere, the prints. And then when it's a, it's a time of... Uh, coloring a lot of the painting uh, inspire me especially 
in my heart, it's a Middle Europa. So a lot of the painters from the Middle Europa, they can be Klimt, Kokoschka, all this kind of, uh, of color, but also Piero della Francesca, also, also you know, many different things. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then when I go uh, in the places like India, for example, to realize the collection, what is beautiful is that... Um, the defect become the beauty. The, the, what you design evolutes. You know, it's, it's a continual evolution. Mm -hmm. And so at one point you have to stop, otherwise the collection never, <laughs> never, is never ended. But yeah. what is very beautiful is the evolution through the artisanal uh, hand. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really interesting. So you're telling me that it actually, Instagram and Google and all of that can be very inspiring, can help with the color in those early, but, but then it is when you go and see the artisans and you, and you work hand in hand that there's a, it goes in a new direction, an unexpected direction because you have that complicity with a local artisan. Okay. No, I was saying also, I'm not very good at Google and all these kind of things. For example, the prints, we do all by hand. I have an agenda. I write everything on my agenda. I don't write on my laptop because I lose the poetry, you know, the effect that is natural. And also all the prints, all the embroideries, of course, they are hand by, uh, handmade. You know, you have one needle and you, <laughs> you go like that. So mm -hmm. it's very important also to have the coloring uh, when you embroidery, for example, when you do embroideries, how you put the sequence, mm -hmm. the heart of the flower or the leaves or the, you know. So mm -hmm. it's very important not to have something only on laptop but to, to have something real. I know, I, I can speak from experience. I have a, one of your Antique Baltique sequins jackets. I've had it for 15 years and it has not moved. It's perfect. I still use it on my big occasions. So you can tell that the artisanal hand is in there and that it, that, that workmanship is at the forefront of the design. It, it shows in, in the fact that it's lasted so long and in the fact that it just looks amazing. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, that aspect of the artisan because you and your company, just by the nature of the company, are very sustainable and eco-friendly, not just in the materials that you use, but you talked more about this idea of, of working for a long time with certain different designers or artisans in different parts of the world, building these long-term relationships. So helping with, you know, with uh, fair trade and, and the, and the, where they work and that everything is up to norm. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because back when you started the idea of eco-friendly fashion or sustainability was not a la mode or in fashion as it is now. So how did you, convince people that that was important? How did you make that a core aspect of your business? And how do you think it's evolving now? Uh, you know, it was uh, something really natural at the beginning. And then uh, uh, I have the impression now after the, all that situation that we stay uh, blocked in the house for two and a half months, we really need to b come back to the ground, be more natural. We don't want plastic anymore. We don't, but we want the real things and we want the real from the beginning to the end not that it is becoming only a fashion it's very important of of course when you work when you do with, the work with the handicraft to do a sort of slow fashion mm -hmm. uh, to give time to time so I had that habit to give time to time since the beginning. I remember the first time when I went in Bali and I had the big, the first big order and I was very excited. I pushed the artisans to do faster and they were saying to me, sakit, sakit, which means I'm sick. 
because you pushed me and I'm becoming out of balance. So mm-hmm. from that day, 30 years ago, I understood what it was important uh, in that philosophy to give time to the people to do the right things and not to do it in rush because the love is from the beginning to the end. You have to, It's a message you have to give. So... For me to do the things in an ethic way, ethic way it, was, uh, it was the solution. Mm-hmm. Also, when uh, you know you have to be habit with, with the country you are working with, you cannot arrive with a big contract and you have to respect this and you have to respect that. You have to bring the people to understand that respecting the people that they are working for you gives better work. Mm-hmm. Uh, give them the fun and the, the hair condition will make them work better you know so all these kind all these little steps that you achieve it's not something for the publicity it's yeah. something that you do because the work is done with the heart and it's done in a good way you know well i, I think that the world definitely is going in the direction of antique baltique and that we're wanting things that are more sustainable we're wanting to buy less but better and um, we're wanting to have that c- connection and that story and and, and supporting you know, independent designers. Um, you're an independent designer. You, this is your own company. You launched it. You fund it. Do you have any uh, advice for young women today or young designers today who want to launch their own company? Because having an independent brand today can be quite complicated, especially in the the markets that we live in. But I'm curious to see what you think. I'm a, I'm a hard worker. It's really complicated, in fact, because you need to have. Uh, uh, how, how you say cerveau gauche et cerveau droit. Left uh, brain, you, right brain, yep. Yes, you need to be a creative. I put the creative part in the middle of everything, but you need to handle that creativity. You need to, uh, to work to make the money coming in and everything. So I would say 90% of uh, transpiration and 10% of inspiration. <laughs> I do love that line. I do love that line. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Let's talk a little bit more about the the fashion evolution because right now we have a lot of designers talking about everything is so fast, seasons don't make sense anymore, clothing arrives when it's, you know, summer clothing arrives when it's uh, freezing outside and vice versa. What are your thoughts about how you would like to see the fashion industry change as far as the way it's run and its cycles and everything like that. I would like to see a little slowdown, actually, to take more time, you know. Uh, and uh, I, I tell you that that COVID time for me was very helpful because again I start to because we run, we are trapped in the running all the time, you know. And even if you want to slow down, and at that time I found myself dreaming like I was a little girl dreaming in my room, you know? So creativity is the best part. We never have to lose it, you know? No, I agree. I agree. I know that you launched a children's line, that there's talk, you know, there's discussion or maybe it's already happened in interior or furniture. Can you talk to me about how you want to evolve the brand now? I mean, you've got a great footprint. People know the brand. It's got a great DNA brand recognition. How do you want to grow your company going forward? Yeah, I think Antic Batik has a very strong DNA and uh, he's a brand that is uh, uh, more of uh, art of life. It's not, it's not only fashion, it can be everything. Uh, we just did a pop-up in Beaumarchais with uh, 
interior uh, cushions, uh, mattress, many different things. We will do another one in Christmas. I think it's the best brand to uh, to do, uh, you know, many different things, even uh, uh, something, even perfumes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because I, I live in that way. I mean, uh, I like natural things. I cure myself with uh, natural oils. I learned... Uh, you know, I wanted to learn like uh, Les Rois Mages, they were coming from Asia to through uh, the, Middle, the Middle Europe and down to, to our countries, how to read the stars, how to uh, cure yourself, how to bring the saffron and the silks, mm -hmm. uh, and everything was handmade. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty, you know? No, I, I agree. I think it really is very much, uh, it has all of the, all of the, the roots, the foundation, for, to become a lifestyle brand like you're like you're talking about absolutely for sure where do you want to travel to next i mean i know you've traveled the world but is there a location in the world that you haven't visited that you're like dying to see and discover many different places <laughs> <I'm> surprised <laughs> I travel just a little, not so much, unfortunately. I just went in uh, Mongolia and was a magic, magic uh, journey. Every time I do a big uh, trip like that, uh, I go with a photographer and we do uh, like um, uh, very nice reportage with the models. And uh, in Mongolia, it was just magic, you know. I would like to go uh, to many different places, maybe more Antarctica. Uh, by humans which is which are very rare in this hurt <laughs> no kidding no kidding i know i know well listen i think i want to ask you now my five generic fashion questions and when you decide for your next trip i definitely want you to dm me or send me a message because i'd be very curious to where you decide to go next that's untouched so all right so here are the five generic fashion questions what is your favorite piece of clothing that you own uh, something i have i have two different things i have one dress Yves Saint Laurent, that was my mother dress, but because it was, it was my mother dress, because I have many other things, but <laughs> I have a, a pair of shoes from her that were done uh, by Aldo Sacchetti, who was a guy who was doing shoes in uh, Torino, and every lady had his own uh, wood foot uh, yeah, done. Yeah, sculpted foot design, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I... I was young when I used to go with my mother there and it was a really magic, you know? Oh my God, that's wonderful. That's, that's really touching. All right, my next question is, most men and women don't have a huge budget to put into fashion. That's why there's so much fashion out there in the world, although the world does seem to be getting educated about buying less but better. But if there was one thing you would say for a woman or a man to really invest money in, one garment or piece of clothing, what would you say that that one piece would be? Uh, I would say uh, for men, it's even more obvious. I, I would say something that lasts. Mm -hmm. uh, what is very important, I was born and raised with the quality of the materials, you know, and uh, I like the material that are very, um, that last, you know, that are, uh, you know, I love to have things, for example, in my closet, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't say that, but that last for 30 years, even more, you know, and they are still uh, perfect, and the line is perfect, and the material is perfect, you know. I'm the same, I have pieces that I've had, that I bought, you know, well, your pieces, you know, 15 years ago, and they, and they don't move, and they still serve a purpose, and they're still wonderful to this day, so... 
So your your idea would be for them not put one particular piece, but pick a piece that's well made. That's the thing you want to invest in. Well yeah. made. Okay. Um, my next question is, who is your favorite uh, fashion designer, living or dead? May, I have many. Uh, of course, I tell you Yves Saint Laurent, uh, Alaya. I mm. love Alaya because uh, I love the designers who make ladies beautiful. <laughs> so mostly I like the one who, who are no more here. Unfortunately. Well, I mean, there's still a couple of few good ones left out there that are still creating. Thank, thank goodness, yeah. not good. What trend will you never follow? What fashion trend will you never follow? The one that makes uh, women vulgish. Makes women what? Vulgar. 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 Yes. Vulgar. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So we'll just leave it broad. We'll be very broad. Anything that makes a woman look vulgar. Okay. <laughs> Um, and then my last question for you is, what do you love most about fashion? The, the, the magic, the magic. You can wear a, a dress and you become a princess, you know. Uh, it's the magic. Gabriela, grazie mille. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. It's just a delight to be able to speak with you and to, to discover your world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Merci. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.